0: Welcome to the Agile Book Club podcast, where we hang out and talk shop with the authors whose ideas are shaping the Agile landscape. Here is your host, Paul Clipp.
1: Hello to you kind listeners, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Agile Book Club podcast. I am your host, Paul Clipp, and we've got a great episode for you today. My guest today is Alan Kelly. I know Alan Kelly as an author and as a competitor. Uh, That's not fair to say. We're not really competing. He is one of the organizers of the Agile on the Beach conference, and I know the Agile on the Beach conference very well because in the early days when I was speaking at many conferences, I was rejected by Agile on the Beach, and from that moment on, I have held that conference in much higher esteem. It's a fabulous event. Um, conference organizers in in Europe aren't in competition with each other. We're learning from each other and we're supporting each other. And what they're doing out there is fabulous. He is also, I also know him as an author of many, many, many books. Um, he, his, his, his books include titles like Business Patterns for Software Developers, Project Myopia, Continuous Digital, The Art of Agile Product Ownership, Books to be Written, which was a very inspiring book for me. It inspired the last book that I wrote myself and what we're going to be talking about today succeeding with okrs and agile now of course that's not enough to say because these are the days when seo has met met authorship and so the full title is succeeding with okrs and agile how to create and deliver objectives and key results for teams and while this is written for teams it's certainly a book that would resonate with leaders as well and as you will hear him explain agile coaches as well who are faced with facilitating the introduction of okrs with their teams and so let's get right into it because this is a really nice conversation I think you're gonna like it please meet my my guest today Alan Kelly my first question is uh, there are already a lot of books about OKRs out there There there's some really good books about OKRs out there so why did succeeding with OKRs and Agile need to be written
0: well for starters, none of those books specifically address Agile and OKRs. Or rather, they didn't when I was writing the book. There's there's probably other books out there that put the two together. But it appeared to me that there were places where and some interpretations of OKRs conflicted with Agile. And the, the most obvious one here is that Many people take OKRs, and they see OKRs as a return to command and control. And certainly, if you base your understanding of OKRs on the early literature and until 1970s where they came from, you know you are going to get that that kind of th- feel that OKRs are something that managers give to people. And clearly, you know, in the agile world where we value self-organization, autonomy, self-management, and all of that good stuff that's a conflict. And so we're trying to put these two things together and they are potentially in conflict. So part of writing the book was to say, okay, that there is, there may be a conflict here, but, but they can work together. And that came from my starting point with OKRs in that I knew what they were about. I'd heard about them like almost all actual coaches have, but I'd never really used them in anger. And I was coaching with a company, financial services, as often the case. And uh, we came back after Christmas, and there was an edict in the email from the management on high: "Thou shalt use OKRs." No guidance, no information on how to use them, why to use them. And so me and other agile coaches scratch our heads, uh, and we start we start our own learning journey. And, you know, we all rush out and buy, buy, measure what matters and so on. And we all start cramming and we start doing with our teams and we learn. And so the other reason why I wrote the book was I wrote for myself. I think almost all my books I have written for myself. And I know that sounds mean, but it's for myself in, in two ways. Often it's in writing a book that I really understand a subject. So by writing the book, I come to understand. But also, I'm imagining the former me. I'm trying to teach the former me who I was once upon a time. And so the genesis of that book was I'd, I'd made notes on how to use OKRs. And I wanted I wanted a book which I would have had. Because when I looked for a book at the time, there was no book that said actual and OKRs. There was no book that acknowledged my concerns about OKRs, and I wanted that book. So I had some rough notes, and then a little thing called Lockdown happened, and it became my lockdown project. So the book was written for me, and yes, I learned a lot in writing it, but it's also a present to, to the person I was a few years ago.
1: So you describe OKRs in a way that is not in conflict with Agile principles and practices. But are they simply a separate tool or are they complementary to agile practices? Um,
0: I think they, they ca- could be treated like a separate tool. I would rather you didn't do that. I'd rather you didn't just add them as something else you do with everything else. And, you know, this is one of my complaints about a lot of agile implementations, that they take the organization, they take the current processes, and they add agile. It's purely additive. And if you do that, you end up with everything, (laughs) everything you're doing before and all the new stuff, and you increase your own workload, your own overhead. And I think you can make the same mistake with OKRs. You can just add OKRs and it's one more tool you have to administer, one more thing you have to set. And I've come across teams who are very frustrated that they're already doing their their backlogs, their burn downs, they have their product, all the rest of it and they've got to do OKRs in addition. So while you can use them like that, I don't want you to use them like that. I actually want you to go to the other extreme, and I want you to make everything about OKRs. I want OKRs to be your management paradigm, and I think when you view them through an agile lens, OKRs are actually test-first management. The same way at a a developer will write the test set. They know they want to create something. They will write the tests for the things they want to create. And then they aren't finished until they meet the tests. And that plays out the unit test level, the acceptance test level, the BDD behavior level. This OKRs okay, is a test first management. Tell me the outcome you want the team to bring about in three months time. Objective. Now, tell me, how you're going to measure that outcome, what are your success criteria, and they are acceptance criteria. We call them key results. So I think when you, you bring an agile mindset to OKRs, they are test first management. Um, and I think that's, that's why they're compatible. But once you've done that, you want to orientate your world around that.
1: Well, one of the things that you said as well in the book, which which resonated with me, is the idea that OKRs can fill that middle ground in the planning cycle between the the one-year and the five-year plans, the mission, the vision of the organization, and the two-week cadence in which teams are running in order to give not only reasonably long periods of stability in the plans, but also some regular intervals for... For reflecting on and, and and adapting to change inside the year
0: yes uh, and i think that's quite important um it's you want to periodically take off your manufacturing you're doing your delivery hat you want to breathe a sigh of relief relax and then you want to think <laughs> yeah bigger picture is a bit of a cliche so let's say wider more generally and you want to connect up with, you know, the real reason why your organization is here, what your strategy are, your mission. And to think about both these things every day is uh, is complex and most of us don't do it. And, you know, sometimes when we're under the thumb, where customers are shouting at us, people want things delivered. The temptation is to narrow, narrow, narrow and just get on and deliver. And I want us to stop. And step back and think more widely this also incidentally means we're mixing up the roles because you know traditionally you might accept a business analyst or product manager type person to be thinking more strategically and thinking about the future and you're expecting your your coders and your testers to be down in the code doing it right now and if we're again to to share this between people and harness all the brain power and bring the whole team along then everybody needs to sometimes switch their perspective and view things differently so that's why i say yes let, let's have our regular cadence whether it be one week two weeks whatever it is but let's periodically i don't mean every year more often than every year think more broadly
1: you know, that fits nicely into a controversial opinion that I've been sharing lately, which is that if agile folks who are so wedded to their their frameworks are not careful, they're going to be put out of business by product thinkers who are advocating for exactly that, for empowering the team and creating empowered product teams.
0: Yes. I, I will agree and I'll go one step further. They'll be put out of business by our technology, which today means AI, and it's more obvious with AI than it was. But if you think about what we're trying to do with defined processes, we're trying to define processes which cover all eventualities, which means we can we can reduce the amount of decisions that are made by the frontline workers. The frontline workers have got a flowchart to follow. So we come up with these more more prescriptive processes, more detail, and our workers follow them, they get the result. Well, over time you can start to replace the flowchart chart and the workers with machines. So ultimately, you know, you end up with a totally automated everything, you know, and, and AI plays into this. Now, I would argue that actually what we actually want is want to value the humans. The things the machine can do, yes, we should use a machine for, but we still want humans in the loop to do the, machines, the things the machines can't. And there are things that humans can do that machines can't do. If it's only listening to customers and making customers feel as if they are being heard, you know, I'm sure you can record a customer and play that into Chat GPT and send a customer a night message, but the moment they realise it, they, you know, they're not going to value it. So, yes, let's have our processes, but we're constantly trying to add more technology in there, and I don't think any process can cover every eventuality. And we need humans in the loop.
1: Couldn't agree more. Um, You know, I I got my start in management in a prison, and uh, I was responsible for running the the kitchen crew. So I was the they 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 called it the um, goodness. What was my job title back then? I'm food service director, and so I was responsible for running the kitchen, and all of my employees were prisoners, who were criminals, who had gotten caught. And so one of the things that that is shocking to me coming from managing those people who were not unclever people, but they weren't engineers by and large, although there were a few chemists, come to think of it, (laughs) as you can imagine, Um, and really good at logistics, too, come to think of it. But in any case, it it struck me as as just phenomenal when i started working with whole teams of engineers the idea not to harness that brain power because everyone in the room was smarter than me yes
0: and, and some of this goes back to the outdated management models that the manager knows best. The manager is the expert and the manager instructs people in how to do, you know, the old analogy of Henry Ford and all that. You put on the wheels and you put on the wheels every day for the rest of your life. Now, Tim O'Reilly, who people probably know from a publishing company, he published a, a an article a few years ago in, in a management journal. And he said, today, the hard work is done by our systems, specifically by our programs. You know, so yes, there are some workers in the car factory, but a lot of the heavy lifting is done by machine. And when you you go shopping, you're probably shopping online and it's a machine that's giving you the options and a machine that's taking your payment and a machine that's dispatching it. And what Tim O'Reilly said is the roles that people used to do are now done by machines. The people who manage the machines are the programmers. And actually, the programmers of today are akin to the managers of yesterday who used to manage the shop floor workers and the factory line assembly people, which, which I think is brilliant. I, I absolutely agree with Tim on this. But then you think about the consequences. What this means now is the people we call programmers and testers and analysts. They need to understand more about what the company is trying to do, the company's strategy, the company purpose. They need the power to make decisions. There's no point in a programmer saying, oh, I need to ask my manager, and the manager, I need to ask my manager, and going up the hierarchy. You know, that That's really inefficient. the The management power needs to be with the people with their hands on the keyboard, which are the programmers. This also means that programmers and their related workers Need to also view their view their role as more of a management task, you know. And too often in our world, we have managers over here and programmers over here, and they seem to be destined to fight. You know, they're just
1: different types of manager. Now, that's that's an idea that I fully intend to explore in a bit more depth with you in the second half of the interview. But let's get back to the book. Yeah, please. <laughs> you said you wrote the book for yourself, and and I can certainly appreciate it. But certainly, you hoped someone would read it. What, what kind of a reader did you have in mind?
0: I suppose I was extending for myself. I was thinking of that agile coach who comes back from the Christmas break and finds an email in their mailbox that says, use OKRs. That was, that was by the first person, you know, as the book developed, you know, and again, this, my, my, my whole thinking about the whole team, you know, um and. I think to set OKRs and to use OKRs effectively, you do need to harness the whole team. Um, you know, whatever roles they are. And so those people, going back to what I was just saying about management, those people need to understand the nature of the beast. You can't just call people into the room and say, right, today we're going to set some OKRs. All you need is no is the O is for objective and the K is for K results. Those people need to understand what is there. So the book is also there. For the people who suddenly find that their 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 agile coach or their managers leading them through an OKR process, and they've been given a copy of Measure What Matters, and they look at it and say, "It's not 1975. I'm not building CPUs. I don't work at Google. I'm I'm not trying to land a man on the moon." <laughs> you know, so they they it was very much the 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 average programming team that I had in mind when I was creating it.
1: So when you find yourself face-to-face with someone who is is in this position, who hasn't heard of OKRs until they get that email on a Monday morning, how do you introduce OKRs to them for the first time?
0: I, I haven't got a surefire recipe. Sometimes you're going to take the historical perspective and you'll say, this is where they came from increasingly I find myself just going for that test driven approach that I talked about before and I think if somebody's been exposed to to agile and specifically test driven thinking at whatever level then I, I think the analogy works really well to say look what we're trying to do here is test first management we're going to set out what we're trying to achieve the outcome and we need we need to emphasize it's an outcome it's not a milestone it's not a point on a chart. It is something that makes the world a slightly better place. And then we've got our acceptance criteria, our key results around it. So I can I kind of take that avenue more and more these days. And then I'm still assuming that they're, 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 they're an agile, they're familiar with Agile, yeah. I say, well, we've got this cycle over the top of it, this super cycle, every 12 weeks, which is a bit like a super sprint. You know, it's going to start with some some settings, some planning, if you like, and it's going to end with reviewing what we've done, and it's going to end with a retrospective. So if you, if you want to think of it like Agile or Scrum writ large.
1: It seems to me like this is the year of the second edition. Yes. Um, Lisa Adkins came out with the second edition of her classic coaching book. I've heard that um, the fabulous book um, – um, The original Retrospectives book. I forget the title of the Retrospectives book, but I understand that there's a second edition coming out I can't wait for. I love second editions, and I love talking to authors about second editions because it's a lot of work to go back Mm. and revisit what you've put so much effort into, and you've put it to bed, and you've put it behind you, and now you're making it a project again. In your case, what was it that, that made you feel it was worth the time and energy to create a second edition now?
0: It took me about a year to get the energy. And I'm also going to warn you and any other readers who are with books is that today books, particularly eBooks, and especially if you use the LeanPub platform, it's really an exercise in continuous delivery (laughs) and continually updating. And with LeanPub, I use Git. I check my code into Git and I hit the button. It does a build. (laughs) And. You start, it's difficult to know when you're done and you have to draw a line. And with the original book, I I drew a line because I didn't want to get any bigger. So I knew there was stuff I was leaving out. And as tempting as it was to put that stuff back in, for the second edition, I resisted it. But what did make me do it was key results. And I've learned that key results are the bit everyone struggles with, It's in danger of becoming a cliche to say that OKRs are simple in their conception, but the devil is in the detail that it's difficult to get them to work. I think what the first stumbling block is key results. What are key results? Yeah, and I think that's the thing that's difficult to wrap your head around. And this metaphor of key results as acceptance criteria, the more I worked with it, the more I used it, and it was there in the original book the more i worked with it the more the key results just fell into place and it made sense and i also know the biggest mistake people make with key results is they see the objective as a lego house and they see the key results as the lego bricks they are going to put in place and if they just get the right key result in then the sum of the key results gives the objective and i didn't feel as if um, I'd been clear enough about this. I felt as if there was places where maybe I could be misinterpreted and or what I wasn't being, I, I hadn't picked up myself for you. Know, I, you know. So I wanted to go back and clarify this and call out the key results of acceptance criteria. And the way I resolve this in the end is the book actually talks about four different types of key results. And the first type I want you to get is key results as acceptance criteria. that That's where it all works. Now, there's three other ways of doing it, one of which I will kind of accept because it fits in sometimes like, like, as vertical slices that you, you bring together. But there's another couple of ways of implementing it, one of which is the Lego bricks, which I just think is wrong. And I called it out as a way of doing key results, not to recommend it, but to say, hey, there's every chance you've got key results like this and don't do this. Um, because it's, it's almost, it's almost something everybody does on their learning journey. I think everyone starts off with, okay, that's the objective. And then they immediately flip into how are we going to make it? How are we going to build this thing? How are we going to deliver it? And really you want to postpone that conversation. You want to say, this is what we want. How are we going to measure it? what are our acceptance criteria Our success criteria or key results? How are we measuring it? Because I'm a firm believer, and this is something we can come back to later if you want, that to any problem, there are multiple solutions. And which solution you create depends on the constraints. So I want you to separate OKR setting into two steps. Setting the OKRs, deciding what the outcome is going to be, deciding the, the key results, the, the acceptance criteria, the key major parameters. And then maybe in the afternoon, maybe the next day, maybe next week, think about how you're going to build a solution to meet those criteria.
1: There's a couple of things in there we're going to come back to in the second half of the interview, but I want to wrap this half up with with um, one last question, which I think is going to become one of my favorite questions for wrapping up the first half of these interviews under this new format. And that is, if you found yourself on an elevator with your ideal reader, with with an agile coach who hasn't heard of OKRs and just got that email, what would you tell them about your book?
0: I I would say, It's time to leave your backlogs behind. Backlogs are like children's comfort toys. There's a better way. We're still discovering it. As the manifesto says, we're always discovering better ways. We want to be more objective focused. If we're going to set objectives, we need a framework.
1: This is it. Wonderful. And that's a great place to wrap up the first half of the interview. Although if I can say it is a little funny that the manifesto was written in 2001 and the better way was was created in 1975. Sometimes it takes time to see the obvious. Well, I, I, I will say that um, because of the way that OKRs were traditionally used, I can see why an Agilist would bristle at them. And and it took time. It took time, and it took Google to recognize that they could play nicely in in an agile, adaptive um, IT organization. And it took a book like yours to make that widely known. Thank you for that. I hope you enjoyed that. The first half of my interview with Alan Kelly. In the second half of the interview, we're going to do a much deeper dive. But that's two weeks out, which means if what you heard during this interview piques your curiosity, you have time to get the digital copy of the book, maybe even if you live in a major urban center, to get the physical copy of the book. It looks like it's very nicely produced. I only read the digital copy, which was fine. And... Read it before we go into a deep dive so you can follow along with us and see if I am successful in anticipating and getting answers to your questions and digging deeper into your burning issues about OKRs and how they work in an agile organization. There will be links in the show notes to get the book and to learn more about Alan Kelly, to his website, to his other books, and to some of his social media. And as well, oh, and I've got got an announcement to make, and it is this. The ACE conference this year was absolutely fabulous, as the ACE conference is continuously growing and getting better and better. We had over 500 people this year. It's, it's the second largest ACE conference we've ever had. And so the community is coming back. It's coming back from the recession. It's coming back from the pandemic. And we're going to be so ready for them next year in 2024, and you can be there too. The Call for Speakers has opened for Ace. And so please go to aceconf.com if you've got a story to tell or a message to share. We love hearing from new speakers as well as old speakers. And the Call for Speakers will be open until mid-January, but there's no reason to wait until the last minute. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your talk proposals. It's going to be another fabulous year next year, and you can be a big part of it. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you again in two weeks when we hear the second half of my interview with Alan Kelly.